0: Hello, I'm Laurie Dumori, and I'm Laura Jackson and together we run Towpath, four little kiosks, a kitchen, a bar, a seated area and our larder, which together make up our restaurant alongside Regent's Canal, deep in East London. This is our 11th year running Towpath. Obviously this year has been quite different to the previous 10, but it's been an amazing time because we wrote a cookbook, which was released in October, and it's filled with lots of beautiful recipes and has given us a chance for people to recreate Topath when they're not able to be here.
1: We've had a lot more time to talk to each other than we usually do, Laura and I. Look at where we've been and where we've gone and reminisce about stories and all the really incredible people that we've gotten to meet because of Topath. And so, welcome to our Towpath world in audio form. In this series, you're going to hear an ongoing conversation between Laura and I. And in each episode, one of us will speak to someone very special who is somehow connected to our Towpath world. Laura and I have recorded these conversations in the third kiosk where we rarely get to sit with each other. And you might hear right now, in fact, some pounding of footsteps as joggers come by, and the coots, squawk, and cyclists go by. There's no really stopping towpath traffic, and we are doing our thing in the middle of it all. I suppose that I would call myself front of house of towpath, even though we don't really have a house or a door but I'm the person that customers see and that interacts with the public and luckily for the public doesn't cook the food, although I love the food and I love food.
0: I'm the back, the hidden bit, where I do all the cooking. So I would say I'm a cook. And unlike you, I like to hide in the kitchen and not interact too much with people because like you, say that if you were doing the cooking, I think if I was doing the talking,
1: we probably wouldn't have (laughs) as great a place as we do now. I think if anyone had shown me like 15 years ago a picture of myself and this place and you and me sort of married as work partners on this funny spot on the canal and said this will be you doing this thing. I would have said, oh, absolutely not. You know, I would bet the farm, absolutely not. Famously, in my family, my first cooking memory was having just learned to read, and I was at my parents' best friend's house with their daughter, and we were making a cake, and we were each doing different things, and when it said, grease the bottom of the pan, I very literally took the butter and greased the outside (laughs) Bottom of the pan because I had no idea why, why you would grease a pan anyway. So I was just doing, if they had said, now go in the corner and do a handstand for five minutes, I would have done that. So everyone in my family is like, we find it hilarious that you ended up in the food world considering. I actually studied law and worked as a lawyer for three years. It did not take me very long to realize that even though I got exactly the job that I wanted, at a West Side entertainment law firm doing intellectual property litigation. That's like the worst feeling when you got exactly what you wanted and realized you don't like it at all. I went on maternity leave and once I got away from it I was like this is definitely not for me. So I always use that as a reminder to myself and my kids also that you know there aren't really any wrong turns. You do things for a while and the wrong turn is if you stay with it for your whole life because it really wasn't the right thing
0: I was born in London and grew up in London I actually didn't have a plan to cook I went to university and studied physiology I had always had a kind of feeling that I wanted to be a doctor from the age of 14 and when it came to applying university I suddenly freaked out about the commitment of becoming a doctor but had no idea what I wanted to do so I thought oh I'll do physiology because it's a similar subject matter but it's only a three-year commitment. So I did that and then at the end of that really still (laughs) didn't know what I wanted to do so decided to apply to do medicine and had a year off between I decided to go and do a cookery course before going back to studying because I thought if I'm going to be studying for another six years and then a lot of exams after that, um, it would be good to know how to cook. So I went and did a cookery course, which was only meant to be for a month. I absolutely fell in love with it and I ended up doing a six-month diploma and then started cooking. So I finished the course in July and in the February I'd started dating my now Husband, He is an architect and he was working for a practice around Arnold Circus and he used to go to Lila's to get coffee. So he told me, oh, you should go and speak to Lila. I went to Lila, who was really, really lovely. She obviously wasn't hiring anyone, but she said a really amazing friend of hers is the head chef at this new place in Primrose Hill. And that's Rosie Sykes and I should go and speak to her because it's super close to where I live and they might be looking for someone. So I went in with my very limited CV, um, I'd done a bit of work experience during my course, went and chatted to Rosie and she was just so warm and bubbly and amazing and, and offered, offered me the job. It was really, really great, but I kind of, after two years, felt like I wanted to be more in a kind of restaurant environment where you were cooking to service and that sort of excitement. Rosie, who suggested she was doing some bits and bobs at Rochelle Canteen and told me to get in touch with them, so I did. And They were only open for lunch Monday to Friday and there were only two chefs in the kitchen. And the sous chef, so not the head chef, was leaving and they asked me if I wanted to take that job.
1: I would say over the years just really became enamored with Italy and the Italian way of cooking, very much through my kid's dad, Jean-Louis, and his restaurants in L.A., Locanda Veneta, Cabrera. People kept asking Jean-Louis and his partner like, did they want to do a book and they were so busy which in a way that I can really understand now how busy you are if if you're really serious about the place that you have you do not have time to do a lot of other things I at that point had Julian and my daughter Michaela, and I always loved writing and I was like oh I'll write it and you know I'll work around you guys and we'll just do it when we can and they thought that was a great idea and then I basically spent the next Oh, probably four years like talking about the book that I was writing that I wasn't actually writing, and then people would say, How's the book coming along? And I would go, Mmm. In those years we had also bought a ramshackle dereliction of a house in the countryside outside of Florence, which we spent about three years restoring and then moved to for a year. So once we had done the first year of Italy, I just remember a moment of revelation driving to pick the kids up at school. I had the window open, there was someone streaming along the edge of the road, and there was these really Tuscan smells of erba cipollina, which is wild chives and mint, and I just had this <laughs> feeling of like, I am not taking my kids back to Los Angeles. No way. It's funny, in my life I certainly, I like remember very pivotal moments where I came to certain decisions, And was hanging out the laundry, and I just said to myself, you are friggin' gonna write this book or you're gonna put it to bed forever. And it's completely fine to put it to bed, but you are not gonna carry on any longer talking about this phantom book that you're writing that you haven't written. And that was basically the big push that I needed. And you know yourself from when we did the book, it's like to move from inertia into actually doing it, that is the hardest bit. And then once you get momentum, then the thing is sort of also propelling itself. So somehow that little exercise with myself got me to start writing. I got an agent, I had a wonderful editor and did this first book, Italy Anywhere. I think my whole experience with Italy was that of like almost like a religious convert when you adopt something that you aren't really born into and you're just so more enamored than people who are born into it and you're just noticing every single thing that you love about and for me about Italy it was just the whole relationship to hospitality and to generosity and simplicity. And and there was so much deliciousness that was not tied to like really expensive ingredients or people having two dishwashers in their very fancy house. And all of that appealed to me so much. And it was like a real education that I became, I don't want to say fanatical, but I was really very, very excited about. And so Italy Anywhere was really about in a way, sometimes the way I think the Topath book, you are giving people recipes, but you're also really trying to teach them like a spirit to cooking that is about not wasting and it's about using everything and the seasons. And so the Italy Anywhere was very much about like wherever you live, let's look at the Italian spirit Mm -hmm. that they bring to the table and where you live, if you use that same spirit, what would your culinary life look like? I started writing for different magazines. You know that I love to talk to people and I'm endlessly curious about them. And it really gave you license to like poke around people's gastronomic business and their ethos. And, and I was in Italy, which was incredibly well placed for that kind of thing. So when I think of all the things that influenced me in a really incredible moment of serendipity, I kept trying to get my foot in the door at Gourmet Magazine. And I tried every way that I could. It just never happened. And one day, I was in Sankashano, which is the little town by the house, and I was taking my friend David White and his then-wife Leslie and their daughter Charlotte around. And this woman taps me on the shoulder and says, excuse me, do you cook? And I turn around, and it's Ruth Reichel, who is the editor-in-chief of Gourmet Magazine. And that's how we formally met. And I then got the best stories of my life from that meeting. And one of them was um, that I wanted to walk the Camino in Spain, the Camino de Santiago. It can be as long as you want it to be, but the Route Francaise, which is 790 kilometers through northern Spain, I wanted to write about it. I wanted to see what stories would come up and she let me just do it. And it ended up being, I'd say, one of the things that's most formative for me that I brought to Towpath. I really learned that the things that made me happy were much simpler than I thought. I learned what like, real nourishment felt like when we looked at these funny little kiosks. For me, having been in London, not knowing anyone, not having any work, I actually spent a year trying to write a book. I wrote a piece for Gourmet, but I tried to write a book about the Camino. I wasn't able to put the words, give the experience the right words, and somehow, looking at this place, and everything that I was feeling so strongly about, it's like this towpath became the conduit for me personally to express all the things that I came to feel so strongly about. And as a little experiment about, well, what would happen if you were out here? And you just gave this like really simple, genuine welcome from a place that is basically nothing. And from my own experience, I had a strong intuition that actually people could be so delighted and so delighted by their surprise that something so small and simple could bring them such delight. I am Sarah
2: and I'm a chef at Topa. I've worked here, it's my third season, so two and a half years, I don't know, something like that. A very special egg fryer. No, <laughs> I don't know. I don't have a speciality, just cooking I guess. (laughs) I love the food here and I lived in South Africa for a really long time and when I came back I knew this is where I wanted to be and luckily Laura had a space for me and I didn't have very much experience and she took me on and here I still am and I love it. A dish that I love just lentils, with mellow vinegar and beetroot, goat's curd. I love the taramasalata. I hated taramaslata before, I never liked it, but Laura's tarama is delicious. All the like really homely matzo ball soup and broth and roast chicken, wholesome and made with a lot of love. It's not like going to a job, it's sort of just like hanging out with your family. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. It doesn't feel like you're going to work every day. It's nice to look at the canal and a good place to be, good people. My sweet,
0: I'm delighted to be having my first conversation with Rosie Sykes. So she was my very, very first head chef. Over the last however many years, she's been helping out from time to time at Towpath in the crazy summer hot months. So to be able to share this conversation and talk about our journey together is is really exciting. I keep all my diaries from each year as a reference um, to look back. But I couldn't find the first year's one. So, and actually, this is 2013. To be fair, my basement is full of boxes of lots of books and things that um, need to go through. So I think it's probably in there. But the earliest year I found was 2013. Rosie and I are sitting in the third kiosk where people would normally be eating their meals. It's very quiet on the canal, it's cold. Luckily we've got Florence, Rosie's little sausage dog, to keep us warm.
3: I would introduce myself as a cook and food writer who has a deep interest in food charitable works and food education. But one of the greatest joys is when I get to come and work at Topath. That's like really fulfilling for me because... I've spent quite a few years now being a development chef and not really working in kitchens as much. I would write menus in conjunction with a say, and then I would develop those recipes so that they had proper cards that anybody can use. And then I would train all the staff. It meant I didn't spend much time in the kitchen and when I did, I had to have lots of scales and be measuring and weighing and telling people they're doing things not quite right. Whereas I love coming here because I just feel like it's so exciting and freeing. And I love how busy it is and vibrant and keeps me younger.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's
0: time. Quite interesting because I was looking this morning and... I mean, it was pretty small, my menu, back then. Literally just a handful of things. So this would have been... Wednesday the 6th of March which would have been the second day we were open obviously when we reopen in March it's I keep the menu very very tight because you don't know we don't really tell people that we're reopening so you don't want to have loads of things on the menu and then no customers come so for this day which this is a very small menu we've got bloody bucks it would have been a blood orange and prosecco drink Incredible. I think I probably put that on there to make the menu look yeah. bigger because <laughs> it was so small. Chilli con carne, basmati rice sour cream and coriander, Swiss chard chickpea and saffron stew, chicory gratin, which would have definitely come with a salad, blood orange grapefruit and fennel salad and grilled cheese sandwich with quince jelly.
3: Do you ever go back, though, Laura? Would you go back before you open again in March? I always
0: go to the year
3: before I or
0: always, more? I, probably the most I do is I always go back and look, and it kind of sort of disappears as we reopen, but definitely for the first week. I'm always really petrified when we reopen. So I think, like, having this reference to see, OK, this is what I did for opening last year makes me feel a little bit calmer. But
3: so. now that you've looked at it, would you be like, oh, might pop a bloody box on, or, or yeah, and look well, at it and go,
0: oh... I haven't done that for ages. Yeah, and I'd and I would like to have the time to, to look through it properly because I'm sure there's some dishes there that I haven't done yeah. for years. Yeah,
3: it's like a, a reference library of your own. It's really fantastic. You know, you could spend a year making something every day, like a cake or whatever it is, and you think, oh, I'm not, I won't take notes. I won't write it down because I'll remember. Of course, I'll remember forever. But you don't. No. You don't. No, you really don't.
0: When I think about Rosie's cooking, and, and which is why she's such an inspiration to me, is, is the real, like... Necessity's the wrong word. I would say it's actual passion of not wanting to waste anything and being able to turn anything into something quite incredible is, is actually quite a hard thing to do so well and i think if if there was a description in the in the dictionary of not wasting food it would have rosie's face next to it (laughs) but i think i don't know the challenge of thinking okay what am i going to do with this and something that i might not have done before and and really cooking in that way and actually that is my most favorite way to cook and that's definitely definitely a hundred percent comes from rosie
3: Where were your sort of starting points, Laura, when you were considering how the menu would look for your very first Towpath menu?
0: The uniqueness about Towpath is obviously the setting. When you say to people you have a restaurant on the canal in London that is essentially outdoors, I think people think you're mad, but that really, really determines what you're going to cook because you are as a customer sitting in the elements and if it's raining, you're going to feel the rain. If it's windy, you're going to feel the wind. If it's hot, if it's a hot day, it is so hot. That is such a big factor to to what you want to produce food-wise. You know, we're like, we have to offer something hot because... It was, we opened in February the first year and it was freezing cold. So we kind of bought one of those industrial urns. Okay, we can do porridge in the morning and then we'll have a quick shift over when lunch starts and put in a soup that will stay hot. Just said one sandwich, a hot offering. Laurie would be behind the counter And then when someone would order their soup or porridge, she would suddenly disappear because the urn was on a tiny little wooden stool. So she'd have to kind of bend over and if you walk past, you'll be like, what's going on here? There's no one here. So, I mean, the kitchen wasn't on site, so I was cooking on the other side of the road. So I wasn't even involved. So did you used
3: to come at lunchtime for service or no? I think at the
0: beginning I did, but because there were only a few of us and there ended up being more people coming. I needed to be cooking the whole time. So when did you get the kitchen? From year two we had. Okay. So we bought the, 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 the kiosk that is now the kitchen, which was owned by the building, and it's double the size of all the other kiosks. People say it's a small kitchen but it's actually quite big.
1: It's um, manageable. Yeah.
0: But mainly because Laura's organised it really well.
3: <laughs>
0: We've got this kind of oven from the 60s. It's amazing.
3: It feels like it really is the sort of heart or one of the ventricles is that a word? Physiognomist? <laughs> um, of the towpath. Because it's it's big and sturdy, and and you always put it on at half-past as the temperature. Yeah, I, yeah, I describe
0: uh, everything as half-past. I actually got a message from one of my old helpers in the kitchen from, like, six years ago. He was, like, texting me, saying, Oh, I want to make the cookies, and um, can you tell me what half-past? I know we cooked at half-past, but what is that in, in an actual temperature? I'm like, I don't know. It was quite funny when I was writing the book. I actually came in and took a photo of the the temperature gauge just so then I could refer to it to to put in the actual temperatures because I just everything is half past 22 20 20 past that's just how my brain works Like have this recurring dream, although touch wood I haven't had it probably for about a year and a half I would have this recurring dream of this dish that I had put on the menu that was, everybody loved so much and it was the most incredible thing and I would wake up in the middle of the night being like what is this thing? What what is this recipe and I haven't put it on the menu for ages and I would go I would remember like key things in in that I was cooking in this dream and I would literally cuz aside from my menus I have hundreds of little books with notes in it. When it first started happening I would start going through these books and trying to look for this recipe and I never ever ever found it.
3: That's amazing.
0: So, so that's my only experience of, like, that, I'm, that I feel like there are probably some things I'd forgotten about that that I would want to put on the menu, but, but I'm, maybe I'm yet to... But maybe they'll appear. Yeah,
3: they'll or maybe it just doesn't the surface exist.
0: Point. As we sort of got busier and busier here, I needed more help in the kitchen. So someone like Rosie was perfect. The great thing about me and you is, you know, it wouldn't be like, come and cook, and here's a list of what you have to cook. It's very much, come and cook, and I've got a box of leeks, and I'd really love to hear what you'd like to do with it, because that, for me, is beneficial, because I'm learning. It's it's a breath of fresh air to to do something different.
3: Fantastic for me too. Every time
0: I came I learnt loads.
3: So yeah, I think we're very complimentary to each other. Well Laura's much better at pastry than me. I can't she makes this incredible short pastry that I cannot work with. It makes makes me come out in
0: Lots of swearing when you're trying to roll it out. I can't
3: use Laura's pastry. But it is beautiful when you eat it.
0: Rosie has so many different dishes that have gone on the menu, but, um, well, I think Rosie's ability to nurture and comfort people with her cooking is on another level, and so, you know, when I think about that kind of food, I think about pies and pastries and things like that. Imagine a sunny weekend day and... 30, 40 breakfast checks. They're falling off the... Uh, I don't even know what... Tab the, What, grabber. The, 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 what tab, grabber. tab grabber? They're falling off the tab grabber. We're so busy. So, you know, when that would happen, what we would do is make some things that we could put up on the counter, which would just sort of help the flow of service and kind of make that chef who was on breakfast make it a bit easier for her. And that kind of thing, Rosie, was really great at coming up suggestions for one of them. And the one that I love so much that would always go up on the counter is a bacon and egg pie. But it must be eaten with the rhubarb ketchup, which is also Rosie's recipe. Obviously, it's delicious on its own, but it takes it to another level when you have it with the rhubarb ketchup. And, and those dishes really, really are 100% from, from Rosie. When I was a kid,
3: we would take bacon and egg pie on picnics with us. <laughs> And you make it in an enamel plate, and then my mum would wrap it in newspaper. So always slightly tasted of newspaper, I think. Anyway, we would always have it with um, homemade ketchup as well. Making it in a in an enamel pie plate is great, but here we often make it in just a fluted tart case. And what it is is puff pastry. I like to use streaky, streaky bacon in the bottom. It doesn't have to be in the bottom, actually. You just break eggs in. You don't whisk them up or anything, you just break the eggs in and prick their yolks, salt and pepper, bacon on top, and then a puff pastry lid on top of that. And you use the egg from inside to paint the top of the pie before you put the lid on. It's best eaten on the day, I would say. It's very simple and the pastry doesn't always get incredibly crisp, but it is nice to put it into a hot oven, onto a hot tray so that the base gets going quite quickly and you do get a bit of crisp. But there's often a bit of a soggy layer, and that's the thing yeah. I can remember. And I think that's what the ketchup really complements, the kind of sharpness of the ketchup with that kind of buttery, soggy. It's quite an incredible combo. And then the ketchup is normally apples and rhubarb. I've just made it with green tomatoes as well. It's, it's a really nice, easy recipe. It's got quite a lot of spices in it, like mace, allspice ginger and then it's got onions I can't remember quite what else basically just boil it all up liquidize it uh, and you get a nice kind of emulsion don't you Laura you get a nice ketchup consistency so but it's tangy and yeah it It kind of tastes more
0: like a cross between a ketchup and a brown sauce exactly exactly
3: Um, yeah because I actually
0: and I say this in the book and I should get off my high horse but I remember there was like a real trend sort of 10 years ago where people were making their own ketchup, like trying to make their own Heinz tomato ketchup Mm. and it just was Mm. always so disappointing. Yeah. As a result of that I remember when Rosie first made it I was very judgy that it was going to be in that same group but it was actually just so delicious and I always have some in my fridge at home as much as I can. You know, we really have to amp things up on the weekend because it is so much busier. And sort of, again, to try and help alleviate the busyness of the kitchen there, we kind of put a lot more offerings of savory and sweet things on the counter so people can just grab it and sit down and enjoy it. You know, I was always looking for different biscuits and slices and all that kind of thing. So I remember um, talking to Rosie because I had been to America and had had these delicious kind of lemon curd, slicey bars there. And I was like, oh, you know, you're always thinking about what you can do. And I thought these would be perfect for Towpath on the weekend, have a little slice up. And I remember speaking to Rosie about it. She then brought in this incredible, really (laughs) tacky looking, white, shiny book that was a New Zealand Women's Institute book. Yeah. You know, so the kind of book you imagine you've just sort of put together and like laminated, it's been printed off, it's all very homely. Rosie was like, there's a really delicious lemon slice recipe in that.
3: And I had just
0: recently for the first time made it because I'd helped
3: them collate this book. I just sort of looked through the recipes for them and... I'd seen this recipe and thought, I've got to make it. The first thing I remembered about it was I was stunned by the amount of sugar (laughs) in it. I kind of freaked out. But then when I made it, I was like, obviously, because it is delicious. And I loved in the introduction, it says something like, Daphne's been making this since 1972. (laughs) In a New Zealand accent, obviously. They're incredible. They are literally a sort of shortbread base. With a lemon curd kind of thing on top that you bake on top, and it kind of goes into the shortbread a bit, doesn't yeah. it? People go crazy for it. If you want to take the fried first,
0: please.
3: Yeah. The way that Topuff runs is incredible. You know, if you're here in the summer, honestly, some days you feel like you're at Glastonbury. There are so many people, and they're all queuing up, but everybody kind of really pulls together such an incredible feeling. In the book that I just published, I say that one of my biggest inspirations is working here with Laura and everything that goes on in that kitchen. It's a really special place to be, and it's really hard, and it's very interesting. You mainly have women in your kitchen, and I think that makes quite a lot of difference as well, because women... Working together are much more thoughtful and caring about each other. Men will come in and complain about how they're feeling shit or what's been happening with them. Probably never will ask the other person standing next to them, "How are you doing?" Whereas we would all check in with each other
0: and yeah, it can it's turn like a into a family. bit of a therapy session yeah, sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's very, it's very raw and it's very open because it is a small space and as Rosie says in the busy times, it is, it is constant and incessant and it's testing and it's really important to form a very, very close bond with people and to care. And I think that's, especially when it gets super busy, I think that's really important.
3: And the other thing that's really amazing about Laura is that she has incredible standards. And, and that is one of the things that makes Towpath. you know, every plate of food that comes out of this kitchen is off the scale. And there are probably two places that I eat if I come to London, and one of them is Towpath because I don't have much time in London, so I wanna make sure if I eat here, I eat well. And you just always know that you are gonna have delicious, delicious food, and inspirational food. I feel really lucky to be part of it.
0: We feel very lucky to have you. <laughs> I mean, I think about when she first came to work and it's like, well, this is my head chef, how could I no, this? <laughs> I mean, I don't think it, I, I hope that the kitchen in Towpath doesn't feel like a hierarchy thing. Obviously, there are certain elements, but, you know, when suddenly Rosie was coming to cook and and I've had a few other chefs who've run their own kitchens for way longer than me and have way more experience than me, it is really daunting because you're like, what are they doing here? Well this is no, this is crazy, but I really really feel the importance of treating everyone the same and and involving everyone as much as possible. And
3: anybody in that kitchen would turn their hand to washing up if they need to, or clearing tables, or you know everybody pulls together. Thank you so much, Oh, God, thank Thank you. I was worried we might cry. I know, I nearly, I was like, no, I can't deal with this. I I
0: know.
1: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Towpath Recipes and Stories. This series was made possible by Chelsea Green Publishing, with a special thanks
0: to Rosie Baldwin.
1: All the recipes talked about in this episode come straight from our cookbook, Towpath Recipes and Stories, which is out everywhere. Our producer is the lovely Hester Cant, Additional sound recording by Alex Katz. And our music is from Sam Amidon's latest album. The track is called Sundown.